Teacher Formation, where we unpack and apply current research to teaching from a Catholic perspective. I'm Monica Kowalski. And I'm Erin Wibbins. We believe that teacher formation is an ongoing process, one that includes learning from current research on best practices in schools. And in each episode, we will unpack a work of current scholarship applied to teaching. This week, we are tackling an article by Candace Stefanou and colleagues called Supporting Autonomy in the Classroom, Ways Teachers Encourage Student Decision-Making and Ownership. This article was published in 2004 in a journal called Educational Psychologist, and of course, we'll link to it in the show notes. So I actually use this article as one of the assigned readings for a course that I teach on motivation. So I'm already pretty familiar with it. Uh, But Erin, I think you're reading this for the first time, right? Right. I I definitely am. And I just want to reiterate to all of our listeners out there that this is an absolutely readable piece, even though it is a piece of strong research and and in a peer-reviewed journal. I would encourage all of you to read it. The vignettes are so readable, as are a lot of the table data. Great. Well, I'm going to summarize the article briefly, and then we'll get into a few questions for each other and applications for this research, like we always do. So this article is based in a motivational theory called self-determination theory. And self-determination theory is a pretty complex theory that deals with a continuum of motivation ranging from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. But the most relevant part of the theory for this for this article's purpose is this idea that humans have three basic needs, their self-determination needs, that have to be met in order for them to be motivated. Uh, These needs are the need for relatedness, feeling like you belong and you have good relationships with other students and teachers, other people. Uh, The second need is competence, the need to feel like you are capable and can be successful in learning or in whatever activity you're attempting to do. And the third self-determination need is autonomy, which is probably the most important to the theory. And autonomy deals with having choices or feeling like you're in control of your own decision-making, your own life. And autonomy is really mostly um, relevant to the study of self-determination theory. It's what most people associate with it is this idea of autonomy and the need for people to feel like they're in control and determining their own lives, Uh, hence the name self-determination theory. So this article talks about autonomy in particular, and it goes beyond just the idea of autonomy equaling choice. And it talks actually about three different types of autonomy that teachers can try to give students. And these are organizational autonomy, which refers to um, opportunities to, to change the way that school is organized. So we think about you know, choosing your own group or choosing where you want to sit in the classroom, something to do with the organization of the learning environment. The second type of autonomy is procedural autonomy, and that's um, having choices in the ways that you maybe demonstrate your knowledge, like choices in your assessments, choices in what problems you do on homework, um, things like that. And then finally, this article um, introduces this idea of cognitive autonomy, which is a little bit more uh, complex, and we'll talk about that more, but, but that has to do with ways to uh, have choices in the way that you think about things in the ways that you are um, learning and grappling with materials. So there's lots of concrete um, ideas in this. Like you said, there's vignettes of real teachers expressing these types of autonomy in their class, and you can really see the impact of these kinds of autonomy on learning. 
Right. And, and I, I really like this article so much. So it, and I want to tell all of our listeners out there that it pushed me beyond my comfort zone. So, um, uh, like you said, it, it, and it does, and it does in a comfortable way. It parses out what makes up this phenomenon of autonomy, um, which I will tell you, we do push in teacher education. Um, and I will say that most helpful to me was the designation, as you note, between, or as you just, you know, I guess, talked about, between organizational, procedural, and cognitive autonomy. And as I read the article and the vignettes that went along with the piece, um, I could picture so many of these scenarios in the classrooms that I've been part of. Um, even this year, I, I was picturing some of the teachers that I work with. And, and it really helped me to push my own thinking beyond to be very honest, the procedural autonomy, which I am absolutely most familiar with as a teacher. And I think that this is the place where I can grow. I, I'm super comfortable with pushing my teachers and myself with this procedural autonomy piece and, and even, even the organiza organizational autonomy, um, but it's in that cognitive autonomy space that I feel like I could even push myself, so. Okay, well, that leads to, um, to some questions. So first of all, Erin, I'm wondering, um, can you give us some ideas of some of the ways that you have seen teachers doing a great job of promoting autonomy in their classrooms, whether it's procedural or organizational or what? Yeah, so absolutely. The most common way that I see teachers pushing autonomy is in student choice and especially with performance-based assessments. So I think this falls in the uh, procedural, this definitely falls in the procedural um, category. So often I have teachers who have a, who they've worked hard to set a clear unit goal and ask students to choose um, sometimes between several choices maybe for a final project. So the students have maybe been working in social studies on a unit on Native Americans and they're allowed to choose between three or four different ways to present their mastery of, of that knowledge. Um, and these choices are often centered around the idea that one of the project choices will appeal to various strengths of various students, right? Um, and teachers often create these options and they even create the rubrics beforehand. Um, and then students have the choice in how they will craft and present their mastery of skills and even the subject matter. Um, so that's one way and I see that an awful lot. I see it in elementary school and even middle school um, and sometimes high school though not as often. Um, and I also see teachers using procedural autonomy when they give students choice for things like homework. So I even push this myself in the course I teach in literacy uh, methods. So um, giving students something we often call choice boards or a menu of choice. We give kids nine different choices and ask them to complete three by Friday or five by Friday. Sometimes we do this with word work like spelling or we might even do this with math where we'll say complete at least four or five of these tasks. Um, before the end of the week. Um, so students are given this menu of choices and they have control and they all, all the choices will aim toward the same objective or skill or standard, but the important thing is that students are encouraged to choose. So what I wanna ask you, Monica, is that, or I wanna say that, like I've said all along, I think from the beginning here, is that the procedural autonomy case is really clear to me. Um, but I will say it's this cognitive autonomy piece that is most confusing. So I, I hope that you can help us unpack this one. Um, so maybe where do you see this construct fitting into classroom life in the elementary, middle, and high school levels? Because I think our listeners would really grow from, from hearing your ideas here. Sure, sure. So I want to say that I agree with you that the procedural autonomy is 
um, super important. And I love all those examples. I love choice boards for homework and things like that. I think those are um, those certainly go a long way in the classroom. And for many students, that's enough to help motivate them when they have these um, types of autonomy in the ways that they're doing their work or the ways that they're that they are um, choosing to demonstrate what they know that can be that can be motivating enough but for some students they may get an assignment like that and think well you know I don't really want to create a poster or do a book report about this I don't feel motivated by either of those so just that amount of autonomy is not necessarily going to work for all of your learners and the idea behind cognitive autonomy is that there are some things that teachers do that aren't the standard giving choices, but that still seem to support students' need for autonomy and their self-determined, to, to help them be more self-determined in their learning. Uh, and that's what this article kind of goes through is how they, they found these, these types of things and they categorize them all as this idea of cognitive autonomy. So for example, they found that some teachers um, had students who really were thriving in environments where the teachers just gave them more time to struggle with some information instead of just jumping right in with what's the right or wrong answer. And that uh, giving them that time, giving students that ownership of the learning was a way to give them autonomy, cognitive autonomy, even if it wasn't, oh, you can sit wherever you want in this class or you can do the odds or even problems, but that having that time and that um, ability to work through problems on their own, almost like constructivist teaching, was a way to increase their, their cognitive autonomy. Similarly, um, letting students do debates where they're really, um, you know, structuring their own thoughts in their own ways or, or using problems that have multiple solutions and letting students think about which way they want to solve something, engaging them in those conversations about how did you come up with this and letting the students feel ownership in describing that and going through. Interestingly, in self-determination theory, um, many researchers think that part of autonomy is sometimes validating students' own thoughts and feelings about assignments, which I are about content and learning, which I think goes along with this idea of cognitive autonomy well. So if a student is saying, I'm really, I really don't enjoy this, I think this is really boring, rather than trying to be the cheerleader and saying, no, no, this is really great, you'll love it. Sometimes just empathizing with the student and saying, I get it, I understand that you think that this is boring. Here's why it's still important to learn. That in that way, you're giving them some autonomy too. You're helping them rationalize why they would want to work on this. And that increases their cognitive autonomy in ways beyond other types of autonomy support. Right. So, so would you say that maybe um, inviting students to self-evaluate or self-reflect would be fitting into the, into the cognitive autonomy? Yeah, absolutely. Letting that self-evaluation, also just in your own evaluation, giving a lot of good informational feedback that's not just right or wrong, but giving them that kind of feedback that they can then reflect on and learn and grow from also supports their cognitive autonomy. And I think what I'm also thinking about too, which I think might resonate with a lot of our listeners is in maybe having students um, build rubrics alongside the teacher. So things um, as, as we're constructing an essay or a project, what are the categories and what, what can we all agree to that we can maybe aim for academically and otherwise um, for, for a project or something? 
would that also maybe be cognitive autonomy? I do think that that's a really good application of it. I think that could definitely be considered uh, autonomy supportive. So, so moving on from this idea of cognitive autonomy, kind of moving back to other types of autonomy as well. Um, I would say one thing that I hear a lot from beginning teachers is that they feel kind of a tension between this recommendation um, that they that they try to increase autonomy, but also their idea, especially as beginning teachers, that they are really concerned about classroom management and being having firm procedures and routines. Uh, and it doesn't always seem to allow for a lot of student autonomy, or they're worried that if we give the students an inch, they'll take a mile and that the class will get derailed if they give too much autonomy. So I, um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and how you think teachers can perhaps balance having strong classroom management, but also allowing students to have a voice and a choice in the classroom. Yeah, I think this is a really great question because we want our teachers to be <clears throat> to be thoughtful and to be well planned. And I am such a firm believer in being well planned, but I always coach my teachers to be flexible. And that kind of seems like they're opposites, to be honest. I don't know if it I don't know if it's possible or I don't they think it's possible, but I definitely do. So um, if you're building a classroom management plan and you're also thinking about organizational autonomy. I think you should think about that plan as a document to guide our interactions with students. And maybe this guide is for our worst days or our students' worst days. And on our best days, which I hope are more of our, more of our days, um, we can be flexible. And I think that this really happens through relationships. And why I say that is because I think this organizational autonomy piece really speaks to well-being. And I think the well-being in your classroom is absolutely based on whether or not you and your students have built a strong relationship with one another. One that um, brings about trust and encouragement on, on most days. So I think that relationships happen when we engage in a give and take. And all of that leads uh, to organizational autonomy and giving students a voice in classroom management. Um, and even the authors here in this study note that all of that leads to an increased sense of well-being in our students. Um, so all that being said, here's what I think some of our teachers could maybe do or think about doing as far as their classroom management strategies or plans. First would be to give your students a voice in coming up with classroom standards and expectations. I, I hate the word rules. I love the rule, the, the idea of expectations. So let's put a positive spin on, on how we expect ourselves and our students to interact uh, with one another. Um, and the second would be to allow students to come up with natural consequences when those standards are not attained. So when things don't go the way we hoped they would or we believed we could, um, what might happen then? And let's engage our students in, in coming up with um, consequences that where we can change our behavior or fix our behavior or apologize for our, our misactions, I guess. Um, and the third, I think, is to, is to honestly or to always uh, to be honest. Um, and I think this is, this is maybe a, uh, a plea to teachers um, to encourage them to say when you make a mistake or when you have a bad day um, to acknowledge it. And I think that acknowledging the same mistake in humanness in your students to remind them often that every day and every moment is a new start. Um, and to give yourself and your students some grace. 
especially on bad days. And I say this because all of that, allowing grace is absolutely being flexible. And being flexible means that you're allowing for humanness and choice and personalities and bad days um, to all come into play into the classroom. Um, All of that to say that you should have a plan to fall back on on your worst days. So um, all that being said, we've been talking a lot a lot about promoting autonomy in the classroom and we just talked or I talked a little bit about organizational autonomy and you helped us unpack this cognitive autonomy piece Um, but I also wanted to look at the bigger picture of self-determination theory in general so the theory suggests that these three needs autonomy relatedness and competence are the fundamental things that teachers should provide in order to motivate students I'm curious as to how you feel about this. Do you agree? Are there elements that you think are missing here? Okay, well, yes. As a, as a motivation researcher, I, um, I actually really love self-determination theory. I think it, uh, it, it's so uh, practical and applied to classrooms. Like You can really see how these three things, the autonomy, relatedness, and competence, how important they are to teaching. And I think if if teachers knew any, were to know anything about motivation, I think starting with those ABCs, as I call them, autonomy, belongingness, and competence, uh, is a great way to start. That, um, that if you work to promote all three of those things for all of your students, you're going to have a lot more success than if you didn't do those things. Uh, so I think it really, it, it's a really comprehensive theory in terms of uh, what teachers should know about motivation. In terms of if there's anything missing, the The only thing for me that's somewhat missing, perhaps, is the idea of challenge. And maybe that goes under the idea of competence, too. But I think students also need to be challenged appropriately in order to be motivated. I mean, we've all been there when you're asked to do something that you do feel very competent in, and it just becomes very boring, or why am I doing this anyway? I already know how to do it. So I think um, the appropriate level of challenge is actually really motivating as well. Um, and there is a, a theory, flow theory, and motivation that, that deals more with the idea of the appropriate level of challenge and interest, putting you sort of in the zone or in this, in this state of flow where you work um, stronger and more highly motivated. So um, that's maybe one thing that, that I would add to the theory, but, but I think that those three needs are really the foundation of what will set you up for strong motivation from your students. I really like the way that you talk about it as ABC, honestly. I think this is something that can find its way into my conversations with um, novice teachers and even in my own course as we work, as we work to plan lesson structures or routines in our classrooms that encourage this kind of autonomy and in order to encourage motivation in general. So I think that's important. So let's move on to our key takeaways. So what's your key takeaway, Monica, for teachers? Okay, well, um, I think in some ways the findings of this study that cognitive autonomy support is so much more impactful than organizational or procedural support um, on their own. I think that can be comforting for teachers so that you can know that you don't necessarily have to allow students to have choices in every single part of your instruction in order for them to be engaged. Um, So the takeaway here maybe has to do with spending time and effort on ways to increase cognitive autonomy by allowing students more opportunities to do more of the heavy lifting in class discussions, for example, uh, and to really feel that their voices and their thoughts 
are valued um, so that they have that type of autonomy over and above what you might get from letting them choose their groups or choose where to sit or choose which homework problems to do. Right. I, I agree with you there. And I think it's really important that maybe the most difficult of these um, autonomies might be the one that we can actually um, might actually save us some time and energy as teachers if we're thoughtful about planning for it in advance. So my key takeaway as a teacher is that you can absolutely plan for organizational and procedural autonomy when you're thinking about the big picture. Um, while these things aren't the only way to build autonomy and motivation, I do think they're absolutely worth some of your thought. And I think they should come into play when you're setting up your classroom, for example, or when you are uh, designing a course plan for social studies or science for your third or fourth graders. Um, these things promote well-being, they promote engagement, which we know have a, a strong effect on student achievement and student belongingness in our classrooms. Um, but I really like what you're saying about cognitive autonomy. And I know that cognitive autonomy might be the most difficult for us as teachers to envision. Um, so examples of what this might be. And I think you and I talked everybody through that a little bit. But I want to encourage teachers to be listeners and partners with their students and to offer them a voice in how things might turn out on um, an assessment piece. So I, I, would, I would like to see teachers and students engage in how they might come to a conclusion of a unit or to, um, to decide a rubric, for example. And I think that's one way where we can involve student voices in what we know and understand. And that takes guts as a, as a novice teacher, um, even as an experienced teacher, to give your students some of the control. How about as a researcher? Well, what I love about this article in terms of research is really just the methodology of the study. And I'm going to geek out here a little bit on research stuff, but... Um, this was just an awesome example of qualitative research where these authors conducted these recorded observations in several classrooms, and it spanned almost a whole school year. Um, and I just appreciate that. So they were doing this qualitative analysis of the transcripts according to their theory that they had, the existing theory, looking for autonomy stuff. And what they found was not exactly what they expected, and so then they coded the data differently and they created this alternative explanation for it, which was this idea of cognitive autonomy in order to make sense of the data. And for me, this is just a good reminder that some of the biggest breakthroughs um, can come unexpectedly in research. And it's also a reminder of why it's so important to get into schools and classrooms and actually see what's going on rather than just relying on theoretical assumptions. Yeah, or number data, right? Yeah, these researchers were in classrooms. They were listening. Right. So I just think that's, um, that, that's a great example of the type of research that's impactful and applicable and the kind of research that I like to read and the kind of research that I, that I hope to do more of. How about you as a researcher? Yeah, so I, um, as a teacher, educator, and researcher, I'm really curious about how teachers feel about where and how to plan for these types of autonomy. So um, I'm actually kind of thinking a different way. So while I love being in classrooms, I'm kind of thinking about a document analysis. And I'm thinking, where, where do the documents that make up our work of teaching allow for this kind of theory work 
to come through. So um, I'm guessing that there are so many documents out there in the schools that our listeners are, are a part of. So, and these documents um, instruct us, right? They instruct teachers how to plan, how to move through planning, how to instruct, how to assess, how to respond to certain students. And I'm curious whether any of these documents um, have any any place maybe where they might uh, allude to any of these separate autonomies or maybe even the larger self-determination theory, right? Um, so where in our documents that instruct our teachers and really we hope found or set up our school, is this theory present? Um, and where do we give our teachers permission to interact with these ideas through the founding documents that our teachers often rely on, because a lot of them are rule followers, um, to, to build their classroom space and their instruction. Um, and, and yeah, I just, I, my hypothesis is not there, they may not be there, and I wish maybe they were, so. Would you wanna look at, say, like teacher's manuals or um, standards even, and see if there's, opportunities for this type of autonomy included in those? Yeah, so not I wasn't I wasn't going as far as curriculum or standards. Honestly, I was really looking at school. I was kind of thinking on a school basis. So I was thinking about how are principals requiring lesson plans to be created and made or what what does our school behavior management plan look like? Um, so, the, so the a level below, like a state standard or a national standard, but what is the operating system for our school, and where is there space for self determination theory and these separate autonomies um, for me for me to feel comfortable um, or empowered to use them that are here? Um, because I think if we send that message at that level, or if it's there, maybe maybe it does trickle down. I'm not sure. So I'm curious. Yeah, that's really interesting, Erin. Um, what is your takeaway um, from a Catholic lens? So this is my favorite. This is my favorite part every time. I, I really helps. I really I think and meditate on this quite often when we have these articles. To be very honest. Um, so as a Catholic teacher and school educator, this article uh, really spoke to the absolute worth and I think precious nature of each and every voice in our classroom. Um, and I think that's what autonomy is, right? Every single one of us um, can and should be autonomous. And often I feel like we are looking to build um, teenagers maybe or third graders into these little molds. We want them all to achieve the standards or all to be proficient on a certain assessment. We want them to give us what we ask for. But this maybe should not be the intent. And I think this article got me thinking about that. And um, it got me thinking that it might be more complex than just reaching proficiency and that maybe we should engage in flexibility and the messiness that that autonomy will absolutely provide to us as teachers and in, as individuals. And the article makes a strong argument for doing that. Um, I don't think it's easy and I don't think it's something you can always plan for, um, but our, I think that our faith certainly speaks to the holiness of each unique vantage point. And I think this theory 100% supports that. Yep, that's very similar to, to what I was thinking, which is really just that um, this article really points to the need for autonomy in helping to develop students to flourish into their whole human potential. And it supports the dignity of each student and allowing them to have that voice and choices in how they determine their lives. 
uh, their free will, so to speak, and in, yeah, in growing to be the, the best of their God-given potential. So um, sparking in them the desire to do so uh, and giving them the meaning and purpose of why they're doing things uh, and letting them buy into it and own up is only going to make them better people uh, in, in the end and, and more godlike in their, in their lives. So, um, so to me, there, there definitely is a connection there as well. Super. So as we wrap up today, we want to remind you that the article that we're talking about today is linked in our show notes for this particular episode and for all our episodes. And we want to thank you for listening to all of our our ideas here on Teacher Formation. And we will see you or hear you next time um, with our next episode. Thanks so much, everybody. 